Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. The, the way that we think about investing, investing thematically, is that you're looking to add the potential um, for outperformance, for growth. Your alpha. Exactly, some yep. alpha. And the point of having it as a satellite or smaller allocation with your overall portfolio is sometimes, you know, you don't necessarily get alpha. Sometimes, um, you know, your thesis was, was wrong. So have that, that boring core in the middle, track what the market's doing, and then allocate in appropriately sized investments Um, around the outsides as satellites as we call them. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. This episode is proudly brought to you by BetaShares ETFs. What are the metals that are essential to the energy transition revolution? And how can you access the royalties from some of your favourite recording artists? Joining me to talk about these investing themes is Cameron Gleeson from BetaShares. G'day Cameron. G'day Phil, great to be here. Thanks very much for coming over. So Cameron Gleeson is Senior Investment Strategist at BetaShares ETFs. We're going to be talking about two ETFs, Royal, R-O-Y-L, and XMET, X-M-E-T. Let's dive right in. What are the metals that will be playing a major role in the sustainable energy transition? What are known as the energy transition metals, or some people refer to them as energy transition materials, are a set of materials which are essentially really intrinsic to the electrification of things like transportation. Previously used in internal combustion engine car, we need to move towards electric vehicles. Also the build out of capacity in renewable energies, wind power, solar and the like. And thirdly, really the um, investment required within the energy grid to enable efficient storage and transmission of electricity, given the nature of the way we generate power is gonna be very different. This was sort of the genesis of the demand we had for OM investors to 
provide exposure to the upstream providers of the metals required to build this out. So previously, we obviously talked about, well, we consume a lot of fossil fuels. In fact, it, it's a series of metals. And I, just to give you the list there, copper, really critical metal for energy transmission and all, all forms of, of renewables and also electric vehicles. But also nickel, manganese, lithium, cobalt, uh, silver, rare earth, graphite, um, I think I've named them all. Um, <laughs> eight, eight metals that currently are used in a range of... Oh, so the, the, there's eight discrete metals, is there? Yeah, talking about for, here? for this ETF. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of study done in this space as to the metals that are required, for example, to generate wind power or generate um, solar power. Um, now, the way that we approached this from an investment thesis to, was to look not just at the metals, which are going to see sizable increase in demand from ENG transition, but also look at metals where there is some either natural or some sort of supply constraint. Mm. Uh, and we work with our index provider in identifying those metals. So there are obviously other metals that are very, going to be very important, such as zinc has some use cases in galvanizing wind turbines. The supply dynamics around zinc aren't um, quite as restrictive or tight. So price support for zinc doesn't look like it will be as strong as the um, level of price support you would need, for example, for lithium. So Mm. it was about basically building an investment case based on firstly the increase in demand, but also some constraint around supply, which means you've got price support. And if you're a producer, a miner of these materials, you're likely to see strong revenue growth as demand goes up. And these are called ETMs, aren't they? Yeah. And, just, just generally, they, these eight minerals are ETMs. Yeah, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So, so the, I mean, the, some people would describe a wider set of, of materials, but this is the set that we describe and define within the index methodology of, of this particular fund, the XMET, which is our Energy Transition Metals ETF. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what are your forecasts for the future demand for these metals? And how do you, how do you come to these forecasts? Yeah. I mean, you must be crunching it's, a lot of numbers. There are a number of quite well-regarded groups that have produced forecasts for how much of each of these metals will be required. It's important to note that all of those forecasts, whether they're in-house ones that we've done or um, independent groups like Bloomberg NEF or, for example, the um, International Energy Agency do forecasts, all of those forecasts are based on particular assumptions as to the adoption of renewables, the adoption of electric vehicles. Most groups will do two forecasts. One is a stated policy scenario, and that's what, what, what we do when we say, what government policies currently exist as to the requirement to transition to electric vehicles? So we're going to be saying, you know, the US is going to be saying whatever year it is where yes, that's uh, right. vehicles are going to be, a certain percentage are going to be electric. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So that's that's the low case in some, case, you know, in some senses, because that's what governments have already committed to. And then there's the high case, which is essentially aligned to the Paris Climate Agreement of no higher temperature change over 1.5 degrees. Mm-hmm. And, and the degree to which those materials are demanded is very variable. But even in the base case, you've got extremely high growth in demand. So take the use in 2020 versus 2040. Look at the um, International Energy Agency forecasts. They see that lithium use in 2040 will have increased by a factor of between 15 to 40 times mm. the, the figure in 2020. If I look at graphite or nickel or cobalt, clearly very important for electric batteries, a factor of increase of between sort of seven to perhaps up to 20 times yeah. the use. Um, and then we also see other materials like copper that have far smaller 
incremental increase, but there's also some interesting things going on in the supply side around copper, which means that we think that there's reason to believe there'll be strong price support in copper anyway, even though the increase isn't as great. Mm. So look, in any case, we're going to see enormous increase in the demand for these materials. And that's why these miners and producers are investing, are breaking new ground, um, building new mines to allow um, supply materials into battery manufacturers, into electric vehicles, um, into renewable energy um, equipment manufacturers. Some of these metals and minerals are coming from places where the governance issues are quite um, sad for the, some of the, pe- the ways people are mining these these things. And so you would think that that's going to be part of the transition as well, that these metals and minerals, we want to be mined in some place where we actually treat the people who are mining the, the minerals better than they currently are. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And also another important point to make is that the carbon footprint from extractive industries like mining is generally quite high. It is important to note that if you look at that carbon footprint from mining some of these metals, you will generally find that on a net basis, the fact that the materials are used for renewables means on a net basis, product life cycle, you actually save carbon. But you're right, there are areas like the Congo that have had, we've seen massive issues mm. with artisanal, as it's called, artisanal cobalt mining. Um, We also see issues around um, water consumption required for particular forms of lithium extraction. Mm. Um, Because lithium's a salt, isn't it? And sometimes it just has to be laid on the ground and dried out, doesn't it? That's what, yeah, Yeah. there's two general. There's two kinds, yeah. Yeah, that's right, exactly right, two methods. And the one that's predominantly used in um, in South America is is essentially evaporation, so Mm. it uses a lot of water. Um, It's important to note in terms of the ETF, we, we you know, we obviously, you know, know that some people will be very focused on the ESG characteristics of this. Yeah. And and so we, we use some filters to filter out what are companies that have been marked as having severe controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also filter out companies that have uh, a substantial amount of exposure in fossil fuels. Because obviously, the, the, you know, some of these are diversified miners. They might be mining copper, cobalt, but they might also, you know, have some sort of role to play in in thermal coal. Um, yeah. And so that was sort of important consideration for us. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of those companies like BHP are divesting themselves of coal. That's right. But, moment, but it still goes def- somewhere def- else, def- doesn't it? Yeah, well, BHP still got coal. So until they divest, then they won't qualify. <laughs> yeah. So most ETFs are based on an index. What is the index that uh, this ETF is based on? Um, the name of the index is the NASDAQ SPROT Energy mm-hmm. Transition Materials Select Index. Yeah. Some of these index names are quite long-winded. Mm-hmm. The important point to note here is that there is a key party involved. So NASDAQ is the index provider. They're calculating the index every day. That, with ETFs, having an index makes it very efficient to manage that money. Sprott is a Canadian asset manager, and they're very active in the energy transition metal space and also in precious metals. They have listed a number of ETFs in combination with the NASDAQ in the States. Mm. Um, they bring a real wealth of knowledge and insight into the energy transition space. One of the key elements of building any kind of ETF is ensuring that you've got true-to-label exposure. Mm, mm. And what their role is, is essentially to identify the revenue exposure, or if you like, the exposure of each company in their mining space and what degree is their revenue associated with each one of those each met, of those eight metals? Um, now, important to note, this is not an, an active fund. It's probably a question you might ask. I was going to ask, is it active or passive? It's passive. Is it, it, it is passive, based yeah. On that, yes. So, so it is important in certain thematic ETFs or th- certain sector ETFs to use an expert body. 
But our philosophy is that what their role is, is to identify all companies in that space. It's not to select which company within that space I prefer. Because within our you know framework of, of providing um, an ETF, what we're obviously looking for is diversification. In this case, diversification across this selection of, of, of different metals. The role of Sprott is they are a selection party and they identify companies that um, have exposure mm-hmm. to various metals. And they... They have a very deep database of mining companies globally, and they can tell us what proportion of each company's revenue is attached to each of these particular metals. Yeah, yeah. At that point, the index is entirely rules-based. So that's the data input that they're providing due to their expertise. Then the way we build the index is you can think of those eight metals as eight different buckets. And we try and fill those buckets with up to six miners or producers of each metal. Beyond that, we also have another bucket for diversified miners that have exposure to multiple metals. Yep. We also have another bucket for essentially recyclers of these metals because part of the supply chain for energy transition materials is in fact going to be recycling. That'll be an increasingly important element. And, 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 and copper especially, isn't it? It's becoming increasingly important copper. to recycle that, it as well, isn't it? Copper, the, the real issue with copper is that the grade of reserves in large tier one copper mines is declining. Mm-hmm. And so supply is likely to drop off. So there is a need to, and copper is actually quite recyclable, so that's good, but there's a need to provide recycling there. But another important element is in the electric vehicle space, the recycling of the batteries, the lithium ion batteries. And if you look at the um, regulations put out by the EU, they're in fact mandating that European automakers have a certain portion of that battery made from recycled battery elements. That industry of recycling um, electric car batteries isn't enormous at the moment because most of these electric vehicles have only just hit the roads we have to wait until those cars reach the end of their useful life and then we see that as they're retired those batteries get recycled but that's all part of the picture it's essentially the upstream supply of all these materials because we know demand for these materials is huge and we know that that supply is constrained so from an investment standpoint that's you know quite a good market dynamic for for investing and it's one that we expect to play out over the long run. This isn't going to be something that plays out over just the next year. Mm. This is a multi-decade thing. Yeah. And it's also because they're commodities, the price is going to go up and down without uh, without any rhyme or reason many times, isn't it? I mean, yeah. and, and a lot of um, there's a lot of listeners who would have jumped on the lithium uh, craze of the last few years and they just buy individual lithium miners. Why, why, why not just... You know, invest in the miners themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's a yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Um, one of the sort of you wrote el- it almost. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, uh, one, one of the elements, uh, you know, if you look at, for example, lithium in isolation, is that we think, you know, very long term that the, the it's likely that we're going to see a deficit because while there has been a lot of projects that are coming online, mm. the growth in projects year on year, year after year, is just enormous. So. Longer term, we, we think it's you know quite a constructive picture. In the short term, we can see these you know sort of quite um, you know dramatic moves in that particular material. One reason you might think about investing across the suite of materials, if you take battery materials, right? Like so, the way that that battery manufacturers um, have adapted over the last ten years in terms of building batteries, the two things they're looking to optimize for are basically energy density and cost. If you look at cobalt, cobalt has been um, an element that has become increasingly more expensive. Cobalt's very important for ensuring the battery's stable. 
but battery makers have managed to alter the chemistry to reduce the amount of cobalt in the battery because they don't want to deal with the ESG issues mm-hmm. with, with, with you know some co- uh, cobalt the from yeah. the Congo, yeah, that's right. And they also want to ensure that they can produce that battery at a certain cost level. Mm. And so we see alternate chemistries competing in terms of the ratio of different materials used. So in some senses, investing across a group of companies across a range of those materials is likely to mean that no matter what happens to battery chemistry you're likely to to win or you know receive pretty good returns i I suppose then it'd be very difficult for you to individually go well what's the composition of going to be for a battery next year exactly and which company should i be in for there exactly exactly Mm. yeah yeah right now um the way that most people think about batteries is that um, high nickel content, for example, mm. is very good for, um, for for energy density. However, there are alternate chemistries that prioritize a higher manganese um, content that are being worked on. So, holding that sort of basket exposure yeah. means that you you know you have less of that of that risk on a single on a single uh, you know chemistry technology. And what about policy decisions? I mean, the inf- the Inflation Reduction Act. Which, um, I'm not sure about the naming of that particular policy, but there seems to be a lot of yeah. um, funding of ESG and um, new new uh, renewable technologies in that as well. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. The the US um, Biden policy, the Inflation Reduction Act. I guess it would have been harder to get it through Congress if he, if he called it the Green Energy Act. Yeah. Uh, so essentially, this includes a range of measures which were really designed to support the build-out of supply chains in energy transition materials and the build-out of a renewable energy industry in the United States, which is obviously strategically important because China has, in fact, really become the leader in in a lot of these spaces. And one of the things you, you would argue Biden has tried to do is really, um, I think you could describe it as weaponizing the U.S. consumer by allowing a consumer who wants to buy an electric vehicle to receive a tax credit. But that tax credit is based on the source material for the battery materials used in that electric vehicle. And so the source material must be sourced from a company that America has a free trade agreement from. And if some of that is sourced from China, well, then that tax credit goes away entirely. Yeah. So you can see where there's some, you know, political... There's some levers being pulled That's in right. There. Yeah, yeah, geopolitical jostling. Yeah. Exactly mm. right. Exactly right. And that, that's a real positive for, you know, producers in friendly nation states. Um, and we're also seeing, for example, the release of what was in the states, the U.S. critical mineral strategy, mm-hmm. which provides has provided funding to a, a number of these producers. And Australia produced one of these critical mineral strategies just in the last sort of six months. And we've seen companies like Pilbara Minerals receive government funding, cheap government funding to build out their capacity. So there's certainly some tailwinds from that side. And I don't think that that's a short-term, you know, driver. I think we're going to continue to need much greater growth in supply. And so you'll see an encouragement from policy like that. Mm, mm. So can you talk about a couple of the constituent companies in this ETF? Who are the biggest ones? Um, yeah, so look, I mean, the, the index itself is designed to be diversified. So each stock in that index, a 6% stock cap is applied when we rebalance. Um, and so generally speaking, um, you know the, the biggest names. So man- six, one company can only take up six percent of the whole portfolio. Yes, exactly yeah. right. On the rebalance date, in, yeah. be- in between, if that company it can go up or down, outperforms, yeah, yeah but mm. will rebalance it back down. But some of the bigger names, for example, Freeport McMoran, which mm-hmm. is the world's largest copper producer, uh, U.S. company there, uh, produces most of its revenue from copper and, and has some of the lowest cost copper mines in the world. In Australia, there's a number of names. So, for example, 
Um, IGO Limited, who has pretty significant nickel assets, also has a share of a uh, lithium hydroxide plant, which has recently been commissioned in uh, Quinana in WA. Mm-hmm. Companies like Linus or Sarah Resources, who operate in the graphite space mm-hmm. and have the lowest cost graphite mine in, in outside of China. And then we, we also see other other names from offshore, um, MP Materials Corp, uh, a leader in um, in rare earths and the like. Um, and then even beyond that, if we talk to uh, to recyclers, there is a, a you know company that I think is quite interesting called Umicor, which mm. is a Belgian um, metallurgy company who have really been a market leader in terms of battery recycling. Mm. So that forms mm. part of the overall part of the overall mix. It's interesting to note that while some of these companies are relatively dedicated to a single material. So, for example, lithium producers tend to be specialist lithium producers. There are others that are somewhat diversified that have exposure to whether it be, you know, silver, copper, or whether it be, you know, nickel, silver, copper, cobalt. Mm. Because sometimes in these mines, you're not just extracting a single material. There'll be multiple byproducts um, beyond the the primary material extracted. Uh, But... That gives you some sort of flavour for the overall mix of producers, I think. Talk to me a little bit more about that Belgian company, the, the metallurgical one, you, yeah. because you sound particularly interested in that one. Yeah, yeah. What is it that interests you about it? Oh, look, I mean, I, I just think like um, the way... And they're doing batteries? Is it lithium batteries that they're recycling? That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so if you look at the way they've embedded themselves in that ecosystem, they've formed strategic partnerships with automakers and with battery manufacturers. And look, I'm, I think I might have mentioned this earlier in the podcast, the EU has policy which is quite supportive of recycling. And so, you know, the way that this looks like it may evolve is one of the big things that people worry about with their electric vehicle is what happens if my battery dies? Yeah, where does it go? Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Is the car a write-off? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you think about the way these arrangements can be structured, there is residual value in that battery. And so an automaker can give a you know guaranteed value for this car or at least the battery and replace the battery after a period of time if they have such an arrangement in place. And obviously there can be savings from recycling over extracting new ore. So that, that's very positive. And creating a sort of a closed loop strategic relationship with, with your manufacturer, your automaker and the provider of the materials means that you can guarantee green credentials and also and guarantee- it's a virtuous cycle, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. ESG credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, and so- they, they really are seen as a leader in that space. So that's, that's, I think it's gonna, just going to be a really interesting one to watch. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This episode is proudly brought to you by BetaShares ETFs. Okay, Cameron, so we're going to move on to the Royal ETF, R-O-Y-L. And um, I was particularly interested in this because I've got a, a background in music and, you know, I, I immediately saw royalties. You know, you're going to be making money out of those those royalty streams that artists... I um, know, uh, it's close to your heart, right? It is very, very close to my heart. However, but it uh, seems to be that it's not just music, is it? It's mining, music and pharma. Yeah, and, and okay. actually IT as well. Oh, IT, IT as well, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. That's right, yeah. So, 
um, the use of, of, of royalties to, you know, either engaging in commercial relationships to help in financing solutions has been growing over the last 20 years. Um, and, and also, I mean, we can talk specifically about, about music, the way that people have been consuming music yeah. has led to, shall we say, sort of a different business model, which is very much in line with it, with a, a royalties type business model. Yeah, because we've heard of so many artists who've been selling their catalogue recently, you know. Yeah. And I was always shocked that Bob Dylan's was like only $300 million and Bruce Springsteen, I think it was $500 million. Interesting, yeah. And you remember the Bowie Bonds from back in the day? Oh, I sure do. Yeah, yeah. Because they were the first ones, weren't they? they? Were, the Bowie they Bonds, David Bowie. That's right. Monetized his catalogue very, very early in the piece. Yeah, yeah. It probably only cost $2 million or something at the time. It probably <laughs> would be a bargain yeah. now. Yeah, 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 that's right. Okay, we will get on to the music royalties but how do royalties work in the mining sector yeah so i mean there's different types of royalties um one royalty that people might be familiar with is a is a finance royalty and this is typically where you have a mining company but this can apply to other areas like um the r&d within the healthcare for, for new drugs mm. healthcare industry but if you think about this from the context of a mining company if i'm you know a small cap miner I may not necessarily have the capital to basically develop my mine site. And developing a mine site can take years and years and yeah, years. Yeah, it's years, decades almost and sometimes. That's it? right. Yeah. That's right. So, so so then having no cash flow means that financing that with debt can be prohibitive. So rather than using debt financing or equity financing, which will dilute my interest, one option I have available to me is to look for someone who's willing to provide financing but receive a royalty payment which is often in the form of a proportion of the overall revenue, not the earnings, but the revenue generated from that ore when it's sold. So that's one model that's been used. Another model, which is a variant on that, is rather than taking revenue, receiving an offcut or a, a proportion of the ore or, or whatever that um, resource is produced at a very heavily discounted price. Is another way. So you're not being paid in cash; you're being paid in ore. Exactly, getting right. paid in ore, yeah. but but getting that ore quite cheaply. Mm-hmm. And then a third model, which is particularly uh, widely used in the oil and gas field, is that there are companies that, in fact, own the land, rather than providing financing to help you know exploit that resource. That they're providing basically that, that patch of, of shale land, yeah. so the, that a driller can come along and drill that, and they'll they'll receive a payment for the fact that they own that land. Mm-hmm. Like the Beverly Hillbillies with their oil. Exactly, exactly. That's right. So yeah. you get a gusher and you just sort of take a bit of a percentage of that gusher, but let someone else that's right. drill for it. Yeah. And then move to Beverly Hills, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so they're the three sort of main types that are used in, in the, specifically in the mining and the oil and gas sector. Mm. Because you alluded to how mining can take a long time. And so investors who want to get royalties from these, these mines can be investing at all sorts of different stages, all the way from just a geological survey all the way through to ready to drill, can't yeah, they? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and they've got, got different characteristics as well, that, that stage, don't they? That's right. That's right. And what we've actually seen with royalty companies over the last couple of years is they've actually been, you know, when you have a royalty stream, which is where you're earning revenue, um, that's obviously generating cash flow. We've seen that there's been quite a lot of activity with mining companies discovering all sorts of royalty um, entitlements on their books, and they've in fact been looking to sell them off to, to realize value. So a lot of royalty companies have been spending the last couple of years actually investing and building their business, building their royalties book. And they're obviously you know not thinking about what the royalty is worth today, but thinking about what that's worth 
once that mine comes, um, you know, production comes online. Mm. And a couple of other advantages there in terms of the structure of royalties is that firstly, you are absolving yourself of the, the operational risk of the mine site. So a mining company will, will really focus on operational excellence. How do they ensure that the mine is producing ore but keeping the cost low? By investing this way, you're taking exposure to the commodity price but without that operational risk. But you can also get further upside when a mine increases its overall scope. or They realize that their size of, of the reserves are in fact much greater. So there's potential upside there beyond you know, the, the um, original base case mm. as that mine gets expanded. So there's a number of ways to win there. And it's very similar for pharmaceuticals and uh, biotech, isn't it? Because, again, it's a long time horizon. It can be really capital intensive. And this is where the royalty model plays out as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like we've got a company, for example, Royalty Pharma, that sits within our ETF and you know, they own uh, royalty streams that are attached to some very well-known, you know, drugs that are, you know, v- very well used by uh, by consumers. And and those royalty streams obviously do last for, for a very long time. But there is an upfront risk there and that needs to be funded. That, that R&D development can, can obviously take years and go through many stages. And it's not very capital intensive, is it? This, the royalty business doesn't involve a lot of capital, does it? Yeah, so I guess you'd say it involves a degree of upfront capital in terms of the original investment, but working capital, you know, if you think about the model, if I'm a royalties company, that, and I'll go back to the example of, of uh, mining royalties, mm. um, I actually don't need to really do anything once that mine's up and running. I don't need to employ anyone. I don't need to buy any, you know, diggers. I don't need to buy any mining equipment. Um, and so, you know, what I'm receiving is just a pure cash flow on that Mm. without needing to worry about any any of that capex or, or, or opex so you know from a return on equity perspective it's quite an attractive business and this business model it's so it works in such a similar way that you can actually put music companies i mean we're talking about yeah. you know universal and warners they're very huge yeah music companies but um really this model is similar enough to be able to plonk them into the same ETF, is it? Yeah, so I, I, mean, I wouldn't, I, I'd almost say that if you think about the way royalties sort of evolved in the mining space, it was almost independent of what's happened in yeah. music. Yeah, yeah. Um, because royalties, copyright has been around for 150 exactly. years, something like that. Yeah. Exa- exactly yeah. right, exactly right. Probably, I mean, as you'd be well aware, what, what's changed in, in, in music in particular has been the way that consumers consume mm. being connected to, you know, you know, basically, um, you know, listening to it to a song, uh, and, and that's led to a model which very much aligns to a royalty stream. Um, and companies like Universal, obviously, and um, Warner and others, but also companies that operate within the IT space that specialise in in royalties attached to the use of software, um, have a very similar model where there's intellectual property. Mm. And the royalty stream is based on that intellectual property. I was thinking of a joke about um, precious metals and gold and platinum records, but anyway. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. (laughs) Not bad. When we're talking about a catalogue of music, an artist like Bruce Springsteen or Mm -hmm. Bob Dylan, they've written so much music and copyright resides in many aspects of that music. Mm. And the record companies have it. There's the publishing, there's the mechanical royalties. I mean, I won't get stuck in the woods there, (laughs) but it can get quite complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's like, for example, if you, you think about, um, uh, what's that, what's the song? The classic example is the, 
uh, Dolly Parton song where she owns uh, where there's the um, mm. composition mm. and there's the master yeah, master recording yeah, master recording that, that yeah. um, Whitney Houston did of mm-hmm. um, uh, I will always love you yeah, that's the yeah. one yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah 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 and just the way that that's broken up is very interesting and um, as I understand it also you can carve up that royalty stream between advertising uses um, well that's the other thing advertising use is a huge part of it as well when a song when a, when a song is used in an advertising or as part of a movie soundtrack yes that's going to suddenly generate a huge amount of um, royalties isn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and it also has been interesting the the I mean, we talked about it initially but there have been a number of artists that you know were very big back in their day and people you know using streaming services have rediscovered them and realized you know how good the quality of the music was mm, mm. and um, the value of, of those particular back catalogs is just you know skyrocketed I think one thing that's quite interesting and this is probably a bit beyond the scope of of, of anything that you know concerns this royalties ETF is how do you think about the value of a particular songwriter's work today how do you decide mm. whether that's going to be classic and enduring yeah so therefore have this long tail of revenue attached to it yeah or is it going to be a flash in the pan? Is Cardi B going to be worth this much money in 20 years' time? Yeah. I hope not. I can give you one, one interesting stat, just some stuff I was reading in the um, so Universal Music. They were talking about the um, streaming services in, in, um, in the US being at about 80% penetration rate mm-hmm. for videos or for TV. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you um, think Netflix. Mm-hmm. That's 80% of the... About 80% of the that. eyeballs watching. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or consumers, whereas it's only... Apparently, music streaming, incredibly, only sits at 25%. Now, I really? Think, I think it must be a global figure. Where And where else are they getting the music from? <sighs> Good question. Yeah. I guess there's probably people who are not using a paid service, mm-hmm. paid subscription service. Yeah, yeah. Would be my guess. Don't think anyone's buying CDs anymore, are they? No, yeah. no, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. But I imagine some people would just like almost listen to, mm. I don't know, YouTube for free or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Because um, there is a lot of music available there for free. But, and, but that's interesting too about Spotify is how much of their revenue goes straight to copyright payments. Mm. And, you know, to me, I sort of look at Spotify and I go, how can they make money out of this? All the money's going to the artists and how yep. much is left over to run Spotify. However, yep. it is like a very, very solid income stream. Yeah, I, mm. I, I guess for Spotify themselves, I mean, the fact that they own the consumer gives them mm. a lot of market power. Mm. Um, and, you know, I kind of worry about the artist, really. Like, where, what, what are they left with? And I, I don't, you'd know much more about that myself. But Yeah, well, I think an artist gets, what is it, a million streams is worth $5,000 US um, for an artist on Spotify. Doesn't sound like a lot. No. <laughs> You've got to be doing a lot of streams. That's yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Okay. We're looking at these. These are thematic ETFs, you know, mm-hmm. and possibly not a good idea to have them as core of your ETF. How, how should investors be considering these as part of their portfolios? Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I you know, we, we do think we're an ETF provider. We provide a wide range of ETFs. And the focus of most of our conversation with investors is those low-cost core building blocks. These are, as you, as you mentioned, thematic ETFs. The, the way that we think about investing, investing thematically is that you're looking to add the potential um, for outperformance, for growth. You're alpha. Exactly, some yeah. alpha. And the point of having it as a satellite or smaller allocation with your overall portfolio is sometimes you, know, you don't necessarily get alpha. Sometimes 
um, you know, your thesis was, was wrong. So have that, that boring core in the middle, track what the market's doing, and then allocate in appropriately sized investments um, around the outsides as satellites, as we call them. Mm. One interesting thing about thematic ETFs or thematic investing generally is that quite often because the exposure, if it's true to label, if it really is a um, exposure to energy transition metals or to royalties companies, the degree of correlation or the degree to which it moves in the same way as the overall market can be quite low. Mm. So it can actually, if you're not allocating too much to, to one of these thematic ETFs, can actually really add in terms of risk-adjusted returns or in, in effect, lower the volatility or riskiness of your overall portfolio. You don't want to allocate 50% to one of these funds because mm. that would be yeah. quite volatile. But yeah. sizing it at, and I, I don't want to, to, to give you know, we don't want to give any advice yeah, this, yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. call this this is general in nature only yeah. no, no personal advice but you know an allocation of perhaps four percent you know it might be appropriate for your circumstances might be um and, and and might you know lower the overall portfolio volatility because of the way that fund acts so differently to the broad market mm. So I've got to ask you. Happy to ask, tackle a couple of listeners' questions. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So we've had a listener question. Uh, thank you, Matthew Donato, and thank you very much for the kind words you've said about the podcast. Matthew's going through and listening to every episode at the moment as we speak. Oh, great! And um, he wanted to, um, and I said I'd mentioned that um, you'd be coming on, and we, he had a couple of questions about ETFs. And one was, he wanted to understand about the net asset value or the NAV, NAV, and how to assess it of an ETF. Yeah, so your net asset value is essentially the value of one unit in that fund. So what is the unit price? If you're thinking about it, um, the equivalent for a single share, what's the share price of BHP? That's the way you would sort of think of the underlying value of of one unit of of an ETF. Um, It's calculated daily at the end of the day at close, uh, but... On market in between closes, um, the amount that you trade will be relatively highly um, related to, to that NAV. It'll vary with intraday with market movements. Yeah, it's, but, ne- it's never going to deviate very much from the net asset value, is it? Yeah, yeah so, so it shouldn't deviate very much. It'll, you know, what will dictate that is you know, events that happen intraday. Um, mm-hmm. but, but generally speaking, ETFs are, are relatively um, efficient and generally speaking have very tight bid-ask spreads. So they tend to trade around what we'd call the intraday nav mm. which is a live calculation as to what the value of that fund is at that point in yeah. time maybe you could describe like an asx 200 etf yeah. yeah um how that works that's a great idea yeah yeah so then that asset value let's talk about it that way um if we think about the value of um of a fund and let's use our a200 fund which is our beta shares australia 200 fund it's basically the 200 largest stocks market capitalization weighted we think of the and total- that's about the number of shares on issue um, yeah. multiplied by the price of those shares, basically, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, and, so, and that can change all the time. They yeah. do, they do, yeah. So if that's 200 stocks, the holdings within that fund will be based on the proportion of each of those stocks within the index. Um, each of those stocks will vary on a, on a daily basis. And so imagine it, you had a single stock that was, was half of the overall index, not that that's Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The case, but just to simplify things. Well, the miners and the, <laughs> and the big banks. <laughs> but, but yeah, you're not quite. But yeah, so if if that if that single stock doubled in value um, from one day to the next, then and that stock was half the overall index, and the overall index's nav would go up by about 25%, you know, mm. half of 50%. Yeah. Um, but it really is the accumulation of each of the valuations of the individual stocks that are held within that ETF. Mm. Okay, and Does the other sense? question is, um, what's the difference between hedged and unhedged ETFs? Yeah, so when people refer to hedged and unhedged, they're typically talking about currency hedging. Uh, now, a unhedged ETF or an ETF without currency hedging is typically a global ETF. So it may well be global equities. And because I don't have any hedging in place, one of the factors that will influence the performance of my ETF would be the value of the US dollar versus other global currencies. So let's talk about this within the context of NDQ, which is our NASDAQ 100 ETF, which is all US listed equities. Now, for this fund, if the value of each stock in that index doesn't change overnight, but if the US dollar was to appreciate by 10% against the Australian dollar, then for my Australian investment in NDQ, the value of that NAV will go up by 10%. Mm. So what I have there is an exposure which has changed because of the currency, not because of the value of those stocks in their natural currency. Mm, mm. Now, for a lot of people, that's quite an attractive way of investing. They prefer to invest on an unhedged basis. Some people would say that um, that provides extra diversification. Other people might prefer to invest taking out that currency risk. And so what a fund manager will attempt to do here is that they'll hold, say, you know, $100 million worth of stocks in the NASDAQ but they'll also have a hedge such that if the value of the US dollar appreciates by 10%, the currency hedge in this case will lose you know, the equivalent 10% of the value. So you're maintaining direct exposure to the US dollar performance of the underlying stocks. Mm-hmm. So it's just basically on a one-for-one basis between the Australian dollar and the US dollar? That's right. That's yeah. right. So you can look at the US NASDAQ performance. And, th- and understand that's roughly speaking what you're getting exposure to. Yeah. Okay, Matthew, thank you very much for those questions. Cameron, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed um, talking to you today. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, that was thanks great. Thanks very much. Okay. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. This episode has been proudly brought to you by BetaShares ETFs.